Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together let you know what we've been playing recently. And uh, my cold's getting better. I don't sound like I'm uh, talking out of a fishbowl. So, on this episode, Board on the Air. Definitely a board game podcast. Mozart Games. Dice and Dragons. The Meeple Dungeon. Meeple and the Moose. All games new and old and cardboard conjecture and like i always say have a look at the show notes check out the links to the cast and enjoy the episode hi i'm david and i'm jordan and we are born in the airy weekly radio show in saskatoon and this is what have you been playing uh on tonight's show we are going to talk about Dice Theme Park, a one to four player game by Alley Cat Gaming Designs. Alley Cat Games? Games. Uh, designer Adrian Adamescu and Daryl Andrews. Uh, art by Sabrina Miramon. Uh, this is a sequel of sorts to Dice Hospital. Yeah, you uh, can see a few of the similarities between the two, but it does them in a different way uh not the same designer same artist so it has the same look to it uh daryl andrews and adrian adamescu are uh probably most famous for sagrada and i believe they're both working on the new sagrada campaign game oh, yeah uh in this game your patrons are dice yeah, you have three different patrons. They all like their own certain style of ride or event. Like or... You have your green, yellow, and blue. The blue are pretty relaxed. They like their duck ponds, that sort of stuff. The yellow is thrill seekers. They like their roller coasters and all that sort of stuff. And the green people like to go into haunted mansions. Okay, I got none of that from playing the game. <laughs> I just, if you look at the art, that's what it's for, but. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a pretty game. But I didn't read any of the flavor text. I didn't look at what the game or what the rides and different things were. Uh, it it was the mechanic to me is what I was looking at. That's not to say it wasn't thematic. I just didn't see the theme. You never look hard for the theme. No, I, if, it, I, if it's punching you in the face, you'll see it. But yeah, I, I'm a pretty shallow gamer where I look at looks, but don't really care about the theme. Yeah. So, on your turn, before everyone does anything, everyone plays two cards. They're going to give you income and give you some special abilities for that round, and decide turn order based on a dice value in the top left, ranging from seven to nothing yeah, in the it, Kickstarter edition. It has a little bit of that uh, Mission Red Planet, Libertalia card play in it. Yeah. 
after you decide your turn order, first player gets to take the first of the monorails that has the dice coming to your park and puts them into their home ba- home area. Yeah. Uh, In Dice Hospital, these dice were random. This one has specific numbers that come out each time. Yeah. And it makes a little bit more sense with this one where... Because if you have a two, it's very hard to get much out of that dice. Yeah, I, I thought it made the game a little bit more consistent. A little... Not that Dice Hospital wasn't consistent, but you could get the wrong dice a lot in Dice mm-hmm. Hospital, and you, you were struggling. If someone didn't roll well, everyone could get twos. Yeah, exactly. Uh, after you do that, you then can buy mascots and bonus area Like, not areas. Uh, more more uh, rides, rides, basically. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So similar to Dice Theme Park... Uh, or Dice, Dice Hospital. Hospital. Well, Dice Hospital, you had the choice of one or the other. This one, you could do both. But you had to pay for them instead. Yeah, there's a cost where Dice Hospital, you just took them. Yeah, and the rides, again, tell you what you need to do to activate them, which is opposite of Dice Hospital, where you can activate them at any point, but you don't have to worry about... Well, they still need to have the requirements met, but yeah. you don't have to have them on that. Thing. Yeah, it, it's still color dice per color ride, where it was color specialist mm-hmm. for uh, the other one. Uh, there's a spatial puzzle of moving your dice around in this yeah. one. And mascots in this game are not the, like, they're different than the cert, uh, specialists. specialists in the other game. Where specialists, you put them down and they have a special effect. The mascots still have that special effect. But they don't do as much. Yeah, I, I, w- I would say they're just to help you uh, mitigate your dice. Yeah. For the most part. Uh, after you do that, you can buy map tokens and upgrade your parks with yeah. like merchandise e- areas. Each of your rides has one to two spaces where you can add upgrades to. And they're either... Plus, adding, adding money when you activate it, adding an extra victory point or two when you activate it. Or just getting more activations. Or getting more activations. Each tile, in general, can be activated once, unless you have an upgrade on it. Yeah. And the most that any ride per round will be activated is twice, except when you use the special cards that give you a third turn. Or fourth. Or fourth turn. Uh, after you do that, then you do your activation. So you will say, I'm activating this tile. You say, okay, I have this green dice at a six. And it needs any dice. I turn that six to a five, and then I have to move it to one adjacent tile. And I then continue from there. Yeah, basically the cost of using a die on a ride is a pip. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it gets down to one, they get removed from the game. And they go go home, basically. It's their excitement is the pip value, as as I read, I think. Okay. But... You're more beneficial using your ones than leaving your ones in your park. Yes. Because the ones will always leave, but if you use them, they go away anyway. Yeah, yeah. If you ever turn or use a one, it goes to a zero, which doesn't exist, so then it leaves. Where if you leave a one on your board at the end of your end of the next round, you do a cleanup phase, which gets rid of them. Yeah, so you get more benefit out of using the ones than keeping the ones. Yeah. I would say this game was a little bit thinkier than Dice Hospital. 
the same logistical type puzzle mm-hmm. where you're trying to optimize your activations and your specialists and those types of things to get as much done as you can yeah to get as much done as as many points and you you score more points in this game i one thing i will say is it doesn't feel as tight as uh dice hospital where in dice hospital you have set amount of spaces for dice in this one you can have all the dice you want well it's it's not as penalizing right Mm -hmm. there there's not that penalty of people dying or getting sicker, that type of idea. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just using those die and keeping die coming into your theme park. I was able to keep my dice moving throughout the game, so when I finished, I had a whole bunch of dice left on my board. Yeah, meanwhile I had, like, no dice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to me, this was a great game. Uh, I'm looking forward to playing it more. Uh, I thought the spatial puzzle, I thought the... The way the pips counted down and the way you could use your specialist, to, or you're not your specialist, your mascot mascots to upgrade those and how everybody had a special ability. There's lots of asymmetry to it. And the more you, more stuff you put into your park, the more... Uh, stuff you get out. More asymmetry that happens. Yeah. Uh, you score way more points, as I said. Yeah, we all scored well over 100. Yeah. Uh all in all, uh, a great follow-up to Dice Hospital from Alley Cat. Same great production with their Kickstarter edition, which Shay got. And, yeah. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. For sure. Okay, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we will talk to you next week. This is Royce from Definitely a Board Game Podcast, a podcast definitely about board games, except when it isn't. Today I'd like to talk about a game based on a TV show. Alright, let's be fair, games based on TV shows are often problematic. At one time, it was even considered like a death knell for quality. But in recent years, IP-based games have gotten better. They're not only often great games, but they're usually a lot of fun. But what about games based on a tv show reboot yeah tv show reboots tv show reboots are always a gamble i mean for every battlestar galactica there's a knight rider 2000 for every doctor who there's a 90210 or a dallas or a dynasty or a melrose place or a charm or the freaking awful new twin peaks (sighs) but i digress Today I'd like to talk about a game based on a TV show reboot that I'll be honest blew the doors off the original. That's right, it's My Little Pony, My Little Pony. Until you answered its magic with me. Big adventure, tons of fun, a beautiful heart, faithful and strong, sharing kindness. It's an easy feat and magic. My Little Pony Adventures in Equestria by Renegade Games. I'm going to bet you didn't see that one coming. I'll be the first to admit, I actually really enjoyed the Friendship is Magic TV show. I don't know if that makes me a brony. kind of hope not. But it was a fun show. It included regular guest star John Delancey, who's amazing in everything. And because of the show, I was kind of excited to get the My Little Pony deck builder. 
I'll start by saying this deck builder is a co-op, and I don't love co-op games. But this is a very well thought out co-op, and it has a lot more depth than you would expect based on the theme. It has three primary resources, as well as three secondary resources. It has the primary card lineup that you would expect in any deck building game, but it also has the changing landscape of Ponyville locations, where you can move your character around to complete special tasks that you will then complete to get bonuses and resources. To win the game, you're going to need to defeat a series of hurdles. Each hurdle is taken from an event in the show, often a first act or second act conflict that the friends have to defeat. And then after you defeat the hurdles in the game, just like in the show, you will then go on to meet the big confrontation at the end. Sometimes this is an end of episode big bad, but sometimes it's like an end of season big bad, which is really kind of neat. All while battling a cloudy skies mechanic. This mechanism actually works as like a timer for the game, and it effectively puts pressure on the players to work together and win the game. If it gets too cloudy, ultimately, they'll lose automatically. Alright, let's start with the positive. My Little Pony is a very good game. It's thematic, it's fun, it does something different from other deck builders, it does something I haven't seen before, and I really, really enjoyed my play. My only complaint? I kind of wish they put a point value system on the cards, sort of like DC Deck Building does, so they could have had a competitive variant. Again, I'm not a huge fan of co-ops. From a rules perspective, it would have been a very easy thing to do, and the individual card values, yeah, they would have taken a little work to balance, but it could have been done very simply. Then again, I suppose having the ponies compete to claiming ultimate victory over their so-called friends probably would have been a little bit off-brand. So anyway, if you're interested in a fun, surprisingly deep co-op deck builder, then you could do worse than taking the roles of Twilight Sparkle, Applejack, and of course, Pinkie Pie, for, and playing My Little Pony Adventures in Equestria. My name is Royce from Definitely a Board Game Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more from me and from my special guests, you can find the Definitely a Board Game Podcast wherever podcasts live. And you can always reach out to me personally at definitelybored at gmail.com. Thank you very much, everyone, and have a very happy Wednesday. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Morris from Mozart Games, and I am thrilled to be back again on What You've Been Playing Wednesday this week. If you want to give me a follow on Twitter, you can find me on there as SpiderMo, that's Spider with a Y. I'll often post pics of games that I've been playing, some of my ongoing challenges as a designer, and a few rants and raves along the way. On this week's episode, I want to discuss a couple of games that I recently played for the first time at Shucks in Vancouver during the first week of October. Now, for anybody not familiar with Shucks, it's the Shut Up and Sit Down convention that's hosted in Vancouver, BC. And it's a con that's focused on actually playing games as well as fun panels and lots of inclusiveness. The selling portion that is rampant at most gaming conventions takes a back seat and it really gives this one a much more welcoming atmosphere. I was there early on Thursday to assist in setting up the convention and the game library. And while doing so, I was talking to one of the Paragon volunteers who told me about a game called Detective Club and how she really enjoyed playing it. I'd seen it before, but knew nothing about it, and when she described it as Dixit meets a fake artist goes to New York, I was immediately hooked and knew that I wanted to give it a try at some point during the weekend. Detective Club is designed by Alexander Nevsky, 
the same person who did Mysterium, and this was originally published in 2018. It uses large tarot-sized cards depicting various pieces of art that are all very abstract and usually feature a lot of images within, much like games of Dixit or Mysterium. The game takes place over a series of rounds, depending on the number of players in the game. In each round, one person will be the active player, who will look through their hand of cards and choose two that they're going to be using for this round. They will then write a single word on all of the notepads that are provided, but will leave one intentionally blank. Then they turn the notepads upside down, shuffle them up, and each other player will take one at random. The person who has the blank notebook is called the conspirator, and all the other players are detectives. Once each player has their notepad, the active player will play one of their cards down to the table for all to see that matches their word. All the other players will then take it in turn to play one of their cards, trying to do the same. Obviously, the conspirator has no idea what the word is, so they have to guess by what others have been playing down. Once all players have played two cards, the active player reveals what the word was, and all the players then have to explain why they chose the two cards that they played. The conspirator has to try to bluff their way through, trying to tie their cards to the word revealed. Then all players vote on who they think is the conspirator, and players gain points depending on how the voting turned out. I found this to be a fun change to some of the previous games of this concept, and it works extremely well in larger player counts. It was also a super fun convention game, with a lot of laughs shared around our table throughout. It plays quick, and everybody had a great time playing it. I can definitely recommend Detective Club if you're looking for a lighter party game. The other game is called Moonbase, which is a two-player abstract game by designer Neatoka Shimamoto, and was released in 2019. It takes place over six rounds, and players will take turns placing rings of two different sizes on craters that are printed on the board. The color of the rings match both players, and there's a third neutral color as well. Players are essentially trying to get their rings to stack on top of others of their color, while their opponent is trying to block them from doing so. At the end of each round, if there is a large ring in your color that is not covered by another ring, then you can place one of your resource hexes in it, which will score you two points at game end. If a player is unable to do so, they then get to place a residential hex instead, scoring a single point. You can place multiple resource hexes in one round if there's opportunity to do so. There's also a mobile research building that can be placed in a large ring of your color if it's placed on top of both of your opponent's ring and the third neutral color, which scores you three points at the end of the game if you still have it in your ring. There's a bunch of other placement restrictions and a couple of other ways to score at game end that keeps things close. The rings are also stacked up in random piles at the beginning of the game, so when drafting rings at the start of each round, you never know exactly what you're going to get, and it's a tough choice each round as to whether to grab your own rings or one or two of your opponents in order to hinder their plans. Moonbase plays pretty quickly, and it looks really great on the table. It's super rewarding to be able to block your opponent from an ideal location, and players often have to think a turn or two in advance in order to do well. This was a fun game that I played at the end of the night with a friend of mine, and we both had a lot of fun trying to build the best moon base we could. The components are all super cool and have a great feel to them. And while the game looks super simple at first glance, there's a lot going on during the game. I love the fact that the publisher used rings instead of discs for the player pieces, as it provides a more unique experience, 
and it also allows the scoring pieces to sit inside of them instead of on top, which allows for a lot of strategy when trying to cover up opponent's pieces. It is a tough game to track down, but if you like abstract games, Moonbase is a great option that doesn't really compare to anything else that I have played recently. Thanks for listening to my thoughts on a couple of games that I played at Shucks, and I'll return in another episode to talk about a few others that I played that I really enjoyed as well. Once again, I'm Chris Morris, and may all of your dice rolls be critical successes. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dice and Dragons. And you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dice and Dragons, and on Twitter at Dice and Dragon. And what is it today, Julie? Is it what you've been playing Wednesdays? It is, and this is a little bit of a different type of recording. Uh, we kind of got desynced with the rest of the show for a couple reasons. And today we're going to be talking about Power Rangers Zeo Stronger Than Before. This is the first standalone core box or expansion, it can be both, for the Power Rangers deck building game by Renegade Game Studios, designed by Matt Hira and TC Petty III. Now, Julie, what did you think of this core box? You actually kicked my butt in the last core box, I didn't win a game, and I know you enjoyed it actually more than me, which is surprising as it's a Power Rangers game. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's a deck builder, and and you don't have as much patience for uh, for deck builders. So I have plenty of patience for deck builders. I don't have patience when things kind of just start unraveling, or I can't get a single draw. Uh, yeah. So the these these rangers have uh you know a couple of cool new new cards, and I I did enjoy. Uh, I was able to build up my uh, my Zord, and I had a card that allowed me to kind of reset them all the time, and I kind of got to beat up on you uh, quite a bit again. So so that was fun. The game seemed particularly long, though, but... Uh, yeah, we definitely didn't play uh, the, the start of the game very well, or it was just one of the games where we were able to ramp and build. But it did lead to the game being longer than we thought it would be, especially as... What I'd heard about the Zeo box is that it was trying to make the game a lot faster than what it was. We still hit that hour and a half to hour and 15 mark on every play. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we haven't played the other game for a long, long time. I, you know, I can't, can't remember, honestly, uh, what the... Th- besides the fact that it was long, I don't remember what else we didn't quite like. I do know that the villains didn't feel as powerful as the rangers and basically you know once the rangers got going if you weren't fully built up you were basically gone as a as a villain uh these ones were a little bit better but you know i don't know i uh, i thought i thought it was it was it was good i mean i enjoyed it it's not my favorite way to spend an hour but it was fun uh the other complaint we had was balance and i still think the balance is not great across um across this game because when you were playing as Queen Machina and I was playing as Zeo Ranger 4, you, you didn't seem to really be in the game. Like, you no. were doing okay, but once I got going, I just kept getting more and more going and you just kept falling more and more behind. Well, when I was playing as General Vengex, there were some cool opportunities and there was some stuff that I could have done to really try to take you out uh, earlier on. I missed those opportunities, just didn't see them. And I definitely was in the game but I took too long and you just started getting going and got built up, which is definitely something that I think could be a problem for some people. 
because you can definitely see a huge swing. Now, we've only played the game of two players. I have heard different interpretations of the balance and how people feel about the game, depending on if they're playing it as a 2v1 or a 2v2 game. Yeah, I mean, we've only ever played it as as two, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it. there's a couple new cards, a couple new mechanics. Uh, I think they're stronger. Do I think it's essential? No, personally, I don't. I think a way to summarize it, and you can definitely hear uh, more of our thoughts in our review that has already been released, and uh, we're trying not to spoil the review too much, which is why this will probably be a little bit shorter of a segment, is that this game is still not quite what we want it to be. Um, we've been really enjoying the Renegade uh, Game Studios deck builders. Uh, we have not yet played uh, My Little Pony or Transformers as of this recording. Should be getting the Blade Transformers soon. But surprise, surprise, and this is uh, talking to some friends of ours that have played all of them. The most popular one and the one that everyone says is the most fun is the G.I. Joe deck building game. The one that I think neither of us have the biggest connection to, but so far we had a great time with that game. And I remember putting it out in front of the table for Julie and she's like, really, G.I. Joe? And she's like, this is fun just because of the mechanics and the way that it actually works. So, I think that's a good summary for this. Like this core box, I think it's probably my favorite core box. I would pick this one up over uh, the original because I do think it's got the potential to be a little bit faster, a little bit less heavy on the blocks. That was the other complaint, a lot of blocking in uh, the previous game. But still not quite where I'd like the game to be. But we've got some expansions and hopefully those will change some stuff up and we'll be getting those to the table shortly. So on that note, we're going to remind you to keep playing games. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. And we have just got back. Well, not just got back, but uh, recently got back from Shucks 2022. It was like two days ago. So it's yep. pretty pretty much just Yeah, got but back. this is a big deal <laughs> that we were at Shucks in Vancouver uh, Our first... a couple days ago. Our first convention since COVID. Mm -hmm. So pretty excited. It was. Oh, yeah. It was so, so good. Yes. Um, Yeah. We did and played and saw a lot of people there and it was fantastic. And there was one, not just one game. We played a whole schwack of games there. Yes. One of the games that we played is a game that we had had on our uh, kind of list of games we had wanted to play for a long time. Because I believe the game we're going to talk about here. Uh, is from 2018. You are correct. Yeah, and this so this is a game that was high on our list to play that we just never got to. And and it was sitting there in the library at Shucks. There was two copies of it, and we grabbed it. It was one of the first games that we played yeah. at Shucks on the Friday. We So we drove down Friday morning. Yes. And we got there at, like, what, noon? Yeah. So we were probably playing the game by, like, 20, or like uh, 1230 or so. And one of the first games we played was this one. What game are we talking about, Adam Marie? We are talking about War Chest. Mm-hmm. And that is designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, the first. Um, <laughs> art by Brigitte Indelicato and published by AEG, Alderac Entertainment Group. Yes, yeah, so War Chest. This is a game that 
I've heard, I, I had heard nothing but good things yeah. about it. And I, it was a game that, honestly, hadn't really uh, had caught me, my radar um, early on when it first came out. I was like, okay, just judging by the artwork and things, and it you know, just looked like a crate. Like, like yeah. the artwork is that it's in a box. It's a chest, it's right? It's a chest, Rob. And it's called it's War chest. chest. Yeah, but it didn't, it didn't have something that just like <laughs> ran out and grabbed you. Grabbed you, yeah. To play this game. But then I'd heard like, oh my goodness, everyone, War Chest, War Chest, War Chest over the last like, what, f- uh, four years. And we had never got to play it. And um, David Thompson is one of my uh, particularly favorite designers, and I'm sure you as well. But... Um, yeah, this game was fantastic. Oh <laughs> we, my goodness. We grabbed it and we played it. Two player, obviously. Um, and so just to give you a little backstory on what War Chest is, there's a little description here on their uh, BGG. War Chest is an all, well, not all new, but it is a <laughs> bed building <laughs> war game. At the start of the game, raise your banner, uh, draft several various units into your army, which then you use to capture key points on the board. To succeed in War Chest, you must successfully manage not only your armies on the battlefield, but those that you're waiting to deploy. So this game is a bag builder. Yep. And you have a certain amount of t- uh, tile? Yep. What do you want to call it? Yeah, I would or call chips. them chips. Yeah, kind of like um, poker chips. Yeah, poker chip style that would have uh, different symbols on them. Like a shield or a knight yeah, a or shield, a raven a knight or, or a bird, things like that. Uh, whatever. And they all Bone represent arrow. different types of units. And the board is laid out kind of in a hex kind of style, almost like a diamond. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the exact configuration. I can't remember uh, because we don't own the game. No. Um, but there's a configuration of hexes and there's you on your side and me on my side. And we start with a couple chips on the board and you're basically deciding on whether or not you want to move. Uh, like, yeah, you're going to yeah. have three chips to work with every round. Yeah, you pull three out of your bag. You pull three out of your bag and your bag is made up of a kind of a default chip amount of chips. And then in front of you, you're going to have kind of four different um, units. Uh, yeah, you have you four chips of to. each unit. Two yeah. of each go into your bag to start the game and then two of each stay out in, stay front, out of in you. front of you that you can then Recruit. add to your bag yeah. using the c- recruitment, like you said, action. So and every uh, every player kind of ends up with a different mishmash of these you all have different ones too. They're not units the same. to use. Yeah, yeah, you had different units than I had. I yeah. had archers that could do uh, these type of actions. You had archers that could do that type of action. So what you're doing is you are on your turn grabbing three chips out of your bag to begin with. Yes. And then you can use those chips in various ways. You can either uh, place it out onto the board onto mm-hmm. one of the spots that you can basically uh, spawn out new armies or units onto the board, or you can spend those chips in in a couple other different ways where you can spend it to... You can put it upside down where it's unseen and that's where it doesn't have to be related to what's on the board. Or yes. you can spend it face up, which means it has to be related to one of the chips you already have yeah, on the exactly. board. Yeah, exactly. So if you spend it face up, then that- you could move a chip with a matching symbol on it to a different location. Yes. Or you could use that chip to attack another unit. Yeah. Or you could use that chip to capture a point of interest or whatever. Um, like and a then, face down would allow you to like recruit. Exactly. So you, put it, you spend a face down chip and you get to pull one of the um, one of the chips that are sitting in front of you off of... Of uh, your choice. Of your choice. And you get to put and it, into your, it into your, into your bag, bag for yeah. the next round. Yeah. 
Um, so there's these really interesting decisions to make in this game where you are using these three chips. You're always pulling three chips and you can use those chips however you'd like, whether or not you want to add it to the board if you can. And you can't have two of any type of um, unit on your board. That's right. So like you, you can't have an archer over here and then an archer over here of the same nope. kind. Like you have to then use that chip, spend that chip for its value to manipulate the, the archer that's already on the board exactly. to do some attacking or moving or capturing or, or whatever it might be. things like that, yeah. And then, yeah, you're so you're constantly kind of evaluating what you have in your hand for that particular turn on what you can use and where they are on the board currently. And and, you're, and you never know what you're going to pull, so it's, no, you can't really no. plan for your next turn. You can have what you hope to do, but, oh, yeah. you, but it's yeah, all... Yeah, there's lots of hoping. Yeah, you're but just but like, you're pulling out and you got to work with what you have. You it's get what very you get. interesting. And when you attack somebody, if your attack succeeds, which like it generally will, it, it, it does, does yeah. um, that person's chip that you attacked is out of the game. Yeah, completely out of the completely game. It's not like it game. goes to a spot and then ends up back in your bag. So like so every time a unit dies, it's, it's one gone. less you have, and it makes it very interesting for the bag oh, building so aspect good. because it's so so good. Now you have less of that type of chip mm -hmm. to pull out of your bag, and you got to switch your strategy for what you're doing. Very, very interesting game. It's a ridiculously good two-player game, and yeah. I, it's it's shameful that we took this long to play it. <laughs> we can't we can't have everything. No, <laughs> I know, but yeah, this one, that, my goodness, if you like two-player games, it's very good. This game is fantastic. War Chest. Uh, from AEG. Yeah. So, so good. So We're good. on the hunt for our own copy of this game because it's that good. We need to add it to our collection. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's uh, it for this week. We're going to have a ton to talk about. We're going to have our next podcast episode recording in the next couple of days. That's going to cover everything that we did at Shucks. Yes. Um, so a full review of everything that we did there. A bunch of games that we oh, played. Yeah. People and... we met, things we saw, games we played. It's going to be great. Yeah. Um, so that'll be our next episode of the Meeple Dungeon Podcast, which I think is episode 45. Coming I think you're up. right. So uh, stay tuned for that, and we will see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hello, my name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleandTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk to you about the games I played this week and what you've been playing Wednesday. Following up on last week's play of New York Zoo, we chose to return to one of Uwe Rosenberg's most popular game, Caverna, the Cave Farmers. Now, I'll profess all day long that I prefer Agricola, but I'll concede that Agricola can be a harsh game, you know, garnering the nickname Misery Farm. Between failing to get an engine running, getting iced out of placing professions, and watching someone else get a game-breaking combo of cards that makes you feel grossly inadequate, I can see why some people prefer Caverna. In both Agricola and Caverna, you play as farmers trying to scratch a living from the land. You start with a tiny two-room home and are tasked to grow crops, breed animals, and build structures to enhance your daily life. In Caverna, your player board is two-sided. On the left, you'll have your familiar farmland over overgrown with trees, and on the right is your home mountain. The action selection board is huge and populated with resources every round. Players place one of the workers onto an action space and collect the resources or perform the action that's depicted, and then play will continue around the table until all players have placed all of their workers. At the end of a round, you pull your workers back, evaluate if there's a harvest or not, then reseed the board with resources and go again. One of the biggest changes in Caverna is the furnishing board. Instead of decks of cards and occupations and tools, 
Now, there's some 50-odd rooms that you can build in your mountain once you hew the space in the rocks for your couch, that is. Each of these rooms will provide you with some kind of benefit. Some will let you house more workers, others will allow you to feed your children by feeding them rocks, and others will give you endgame points. Another big aspect to Caverna, although you can ignore this aspect, is arming your dwarves and sending them out on adventures to pick up various goods. The bigger the axe, the better goods that you can acquire. Most of the rounds will conclude with a harvest phase, where you can pull one good off of your planted crops, and then you need to feed your family, two food per family member, and then, if you have two or more of an animal, they will produce a single offspring. I find Caverna to be more open and forgiving than Agricola, and to me that's a bit of a detriment. I really enjoy the tension and satisfaction of overcoming the challenge that is Misery Farm. Caverna is more deterministic, the buildings available are static, meaning you could chase the same strategy every time with the, with the only differences being the order in which the actions will come out every round and your opponents taking the resources that you were really hoping for, which granted, those can be really big impacts on your game. Even though I've been harping on all the ways that I prefer Agricola over Caverna throughout this entire segment, I still really enjoy both. It's fun to get an engine running, and it's fun to see the ebb and flow of resources and it's satisfying at the end when you tally up the points and marvel at how much you've managed to achieve, especially after the first five rounds, you really feel like you're, you've achieved nothing and you'll never get ahead. That being said, here's a little story. The copy of Caverna that we played this week is owned by Bigfoot, who bought it secondhand. The ad had reported that it had only been played once, and the score pad in the box co corroborated this claim. But man, the scores that the previous owners recorded were absolutely atrocious. They had negative 17 points due to unfilled farm spaces. Only two people managed to produce a third worker. The five players that played had managed to earn 10 to 15 points each. By contrast, our three-player game, two, worker, two players had produced four workers while I managed to have six. All but two spaces on all of our player boards were filled, and we had managed to have at least one of every animal. All of our scores were just under 80 points each. I weep for the miserable time the previous owners must have had. And that's all I played this week. If you want to read more of my board game reviews, you can find them on my blog, MeepleInTheMoose.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at MooseMeeple or on Instagram at MeepleInTheMoose. Have a happy Wednesday! Hi everybody, this is David from the All Games New and Old YouTube channel, here with another segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. Uh, forgive me if I sound a little weird maybe, I think I'm coming down to something, so um, I'm going to try to power through this though. So I recently on Twitter put up a poll for what one of my upcoming reviews should be, and the winner of that poll is Firefly Misbehaven, which is a new deck building game from Gale Force 9. So this last weekend I was able to try it. So this is a competitive game for two to four players, and the first thing you're going to do is you're going to pick a faction. So you could pick Niska, the Alliance, Ease Down, or Serenity. And each one of those factions has their own starting deck that's unique to them, and they have some other differences as well that I'll get to in a little bit. Uh, you're going to get your player board in front of you. Uh, one side of the player boards are uh, the same for each player. The other one is unique to each faction, so they'll have different kind of restrictions because... 
on those player boards are going to be spaces where you can put down uh, characters, items, or assets. So depending on the fact that you choose, you'll have a different number of each of those that you could possibly play down. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get a certain number of power in your tableau. So each of the cards that uh, that you get and buy will have a power amount on there. So if you can play up enough power in your tableau to reach whatever the target is, depending on your player count, and you have that at the start of your turn, you win the game. So on your turn, you have four different actions you can do. So you could do one activation. Now that actually is comprised of a few other actions. So that you could play a card to your tableau. You could trigger a card on your tableau where you turn it sideways and use its ability. You could pick a fight. So if you want to pick a fight, you have to be able to play from your hand or from your tableau a card that has the fight symbol on it. And then there's a fight token that you're going to put on a card in one of the other players' tableaus. And so you're essentially fighting that card. It'll have a defense value at the top. And you will then add cards to the one you play down to build up your power enough that you can defeat that defense. But your opponent could also play down cards to add to that defense. And when you start that fight, you have to tell the person you're attacking what you're planning to do. You can either try to nab that card, which will let you put it into your own deck, or you're trying to simply make them discard it if it's not a card that you really want in your deck. So if you are the attacker and you win, you could do whichever one of those two things you picked. Uh, if you are the defender and you win, then that card stays right where it's at. And there's some other bonuses for winning a fight as well. So another activation is making a deal. Again, you're going to have to play out a card that has a deal icon. And what that will let you do is that usually when you purchase a card, you're using influence, which is an amount on each of the cards. But when you make a deal, you're able to use both any influence you play out as well as credits as well as possibly uh, your verse tokens, which I'll also get to later. And that'll let you buy a card that is otherwise probably more expensive than usual. But when you buy it, you put it right into your hand. So you're able to use it pretty much right away. There are cards that your opponents can have that could stop a deal in its tracks. So if your deal gets stopped, you have to immediately do a recruitment action instead. So getting to that, uh, you also do get one recruitment per turn. So in that case, you're going to use your influence to buy a card from the various marketplaces and put that into your discard pile. Some of the cards have symbols that represent each of the four factions. And if that one has a symbol that matches your faction, you can play one of your verse tokens to count as influence, which will make it a little cheaper for you. They try to keep it so that, you know, uh, like Kaylee, for instance, is cheaper for the Serenity crew to buy. So another possible action you have is a verse acquisition. This is where you get the verse tokens I mentioned earlier. Every faction has a possibility of holding up to six verse tokens. And each faction has a card that tells them exactly how they have to do it. And every faction is a little different. So you have to kind of play to your faction's strengths to be able to get those because they are pretty versatile and useful in a lot of ways. You can also spend your verse tokens and that card will tell you the ways you can spend it as well. And that too can change depending on the faction that you've picked. Now I want to talk about the marketplace that you buy your cards from a little bit because it's a little different from other deck builders. There is uh, one marketplace that has basically three areas of space and that have their own deck and their own like two cards out that you can purchase. And, um, you know, other than them being canonically from different parts of space, I don't know if there's a certain way they lean one or the other because I've only played this game once. But there's also a supply market. And those are going to be stacks of, like, each stack is just all the same card. And 
that can change every time you play. So, uh, you know, there's um, some base setups that, that they recommend for certain kinds of games. Um, there's also in the box uh, scenarios, essentially, that you could play that are based on episodes or ones that they made up that they just feel fit the setting, and those will tell you different cards to start out with in there. The difference with the supply cards is when you buy them, they go into your discard as normal, but when you play them, instead of going back into your discard, they go back out into the marketplace again. So they're essentially one-time use cards unless you have something that lets you use them uh, more than once. I know a while back there was a version of Legendary that had Firefly that has notoriously bad art. This one, the art is screen grabs from the show, maybe the movie too, I'm not sure about that. And usually I don't like that, but these actually look pretty nice. I will say that this game is more complicated than I expected it to be. I don't know if it's coming across in the things I'm saying. There's actually a lot going on here compared to uh, a typical deck building game. And we actually caught various rules that we had gotten wrong after the fact that I've had to take notes on so I make sure we don't do that again. And part of that problem is I don't think the rule book is necessarily very well written, or at least it's not well laid out. It was really hard to go in and search for a specific rule when I wanted one because the rules you need might be just some kind of like single sentence in, you know, a sea of several paragraphs. So I don't completely love how the rule book uh, is, is laid out. So, so far, I can't necessarily give a strong opinion on this game either way. I think it has potential to be great, but I'm not certain. It does seem uh, a lot fightier and, and kind of meaner than I expected because there's a lot of things you can do to block each other's actions. And I know some people hate that, and I just have to see how much or how I feel about that in the case of this game. But it is going to be a review that's coming down the pipeline for us. So uh, if you want to check out my channel, All Games New and Old, and subscribe, you'll see that one that pops up. If you're curious about it, I know I'm curious to play a few more times and get a better feel for how this game actually works. Uh, beyond just my YouTube channel, you can follow me on Twitter at All Games New and Old or on TikTok at All Games New and Old. That's it for now. Hope to see you around the table soon. Hey there, everybody. Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And uh, I'm good. Just quick touch base on what I uh, played recently. Uh, and uh, I'm still getting over a cold, so I don't want to push it too hard. Um, but uh, uh, had a uh, awesome time playing live streaming with uh, with Ryan from Mr. Rao Gaming. We played Memoir 44 on Board Game Arena, and this is designed by Richard Borg and uh, published by Days of Wonder and Check this out. This was published in 2004. So we're talking uh, way back in the catalog of Days of Wonder. And uh, so, and if you've, Richard Borg, if that's familiar, same designer that came up with the system for command and colors. There's ancients and there's, there's other iterations of that. But uh, Memoir 44, uh, very cool game. I have the physical copy and I played it so, because I got it just before the pandemic. And uh, but there's a third party solo file on BGG that you can download if it's interesting for you. But Ryan and I played online and it was awesome. And there's so many different scenarios in that game where you set up the board according to a scenario package that's given to you in the base game. And if you run through that, there are a lot of uh, I think Days of Wonder sponsored third party designer kind of. Uh, uh, you know, scenarios and campaigns that you can do. Um, but um, 
Yeah, we played a couple. We played three games. We played one just to just to uh, try it out because we've never uh, played that game online. And uh, then we played. And typically, what you do is you play a back to back, Axis and Allies. You take turns just to see what the balance is of who you know how you played the game with both sides. And uh, how man, that was so much fun just to get to the just to get to the root of it. It was uh, such a fun game. And as we're talking, I mean, there's, it's 2000, like I said, it's 2004. So as far as like design years goes, there's a lot of designs that have developed on the shoulders of, of this architecture, right? But you can't, you can't uh, diss uh, a solid game. And this was a solid game. So how it works is you have three different zones in your field of play and you're opposite each other on this combat area and uh left to right you know one two three kind of thing and then you have a deck of cards that you get that have uh activations in in, in different zones where you can have one two three or all in a certain zone or one of each and right there it's pretty graphically explicative um and then there are uh, event cards that are particular there's you know there's an air raid there's there's uh um you know, event cards right uh i can't it's like i could go i could try to recall what we played but uh the cool part that i was going to get to is it's a common deck so as you're pulling cards and playing cards there's no uniqueness to either side you both have the same uh strategic randomness advantages if you want to call it you I mean it's an even playing field right um and uh yeah we we had so much fun that that we're gonna try to continue the uh, like a once a month kind of campaign run of memoir 44 and uh, i am going to try to i'm gonna try to convince one of my family members that this is a cool game to play so we could play it uh physically at home too so yeah, once again, Memoir 44, uh, designed by Richard Borg, published by Days of Wonder. Fantastic game. I can't wait to play it more. And uh, I can feel my, feel my voice tightening up a little bit here. So I'm uh, going to take that opportunity to thank everybody for listening to what we have to say about uh, the games we've been playing. And also thank you so much to the content creators who, um, you know, do such a great job on helping us spend more money on buying board games. And probably you know getting more shelving units we should have a shelving unit episode <laughs> all right well uh before i go keep your stick on the ice and take care out there eh